1: welcome back to the slate culture gab fest we're all going to It's Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. I'm Isaac Butler, in for Stephen Metcalf. On this week's show, Don't Look Up is the new, I guess you'd call it satire from Adam McKay, skewering our nation's failures to meet the challenges of stopping climate change. It's got an all-star cast, including Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Rylance, and Jennifer Lawrence. We'll discuss the film and the response to it over the past month. Then... Sidney Poitier, I mean, where do you even start in talking about the colossal achievements of the first Black man to win an Oscar for Best Actor, and a man who had such a profound impact on generations of actors, filmmakers, and audiences? We'll start by talking to film historian and friend of the program, Mark Harris, about Poitier's legacy. And finally, Katherine Schultz is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and she has a wonderful new memoir out called Lost and Found. We'll be talking with her about the book and a recent excerpt from it, How I Proposed to My Girlfriend, which appeared in last week's New Yorker. I'm joined today by Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Julia, it has been a very long time since we've co hosted this show together. How are you? How are things in Los Angeles? Hi,
0: Isaac. I'm so happy you're here today. Things are hunky-dory.
1: Oh, great. And we are also, of course, joined by Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Dana, this is the point in the show where Steven always asks you to recite the title and subtitle of your book, almost like a religious litany. And so as his substitute, the duty now falls to me. What is your book called and what is its <laughs> subtitle?
2: The subtitle is the hard part. I can never remember all the sections of it. My book is called Cameraman Buster Keaton The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century, and it's available for pre order now. And it comes out in only two weeks, almost exactly two weeks, and just a week before your upcoming book. And you now have to tell us that title.
1: Uh, Yes, it is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, and this is a perfect segue to reminding listeners that Dana and I will be doing a joint book event at The Strand to discuss her book on Buster Keaton and my book on The Method, and it will actually be a live episode of this very show hosted by Stephen Metcalf. So if you'd like to see our beautiful faces in person, please join us at The Strand in New York City on February 3rd from 7 to 8 p.m. All right, shall we make a show? I'm ready. Don't Look Up is the new star-studded comedy from writer-director Adam McKay. In it, scientists played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence discover that a comet large enough to end all life on Earth is set to hit our planet in six months. But as the clip we're about to listen to makes clear, they meet immediate resistance from the president, played by Meryl Streep, and her cronies who worry about the electoral impact of the comet and soon try to find ways to make money off of it instead of saving the planet. It's all, of course, a big metaphor for how we've failed to respond to the threat of catastrophic climate change. Let's listen to a clip.
3: So how certain is this? There's
1: 100% certainty of impact.
3: Please, don't say 100%. Can
1: we just call it a potentially significant event? Yeah. Yes.
3: But it isn't potentially going to happen. It is going to happen. Exactly, 99.78% to be exact.
1: Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. Well, scientists never like to say 100%.
3: Call
2: it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. You cannot go around
0: saying to people that there's a 100% chance that they're gonna die. You know, it's just
1: nuts. And we should get
0: some of our scientists on this, you know, no
1: offense, but you're just two people that walked in here with-, with Dr. Something. Oglethorpe. Dr. Oglethorpe. Og- 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 All right, Dana, you are our resident film critic, so let me ask you first, what did you make of this film? Did you like it?
2: Gosh, this movie. Okay, well, first of all, I should say that the discourse about this movie, I think, has been probably and will continue to be more interesting than the movie itself. The fact that there's Mm -hmm. such division about it, there's so much fighting about it on social media, the fact that the co-writers, Adam McKay, who's also the director, and David Sirota, former political advisor to Bernie Sanders, have been... Jumping onto social media to defend their movie against the mainly terrible reviews that it's gotten. And there's just been this whole meta discourse boiling around Don't Look Up that I think is more interesting than the actual movie. But since we are talking about the actual movie, this movie is a total mess. It takes forever to make its point. But this is a movie about which I will say, if you question what role direction plays in a movie, here's an example of a movie that the worst thing about it is the direction. I mean, the choice of editing, the choice of framing, the kind of coaching and coordination of the performances. I feel like this is a sort of a mismanaged airport where planes are taking off and landing and everything is sort of happening at once in a vague chaos. And I'm, I'm not sure that this movie is even sure how to accomplish what it is setting out to do. But what it is setting out to do is somewhat unusual and commendable, which is, you know, to have a really head-on, full-frontal allegory about climate change that, you know, is is quite literally Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence in your face, yelling into the camera, the, with the conceit being that they're yelling into a news camera as they appear on a news show. But really, they're yelling at us about climate change. So it is a sort of attempt, I think, for Adam McKay to get out his anger his rage and his sense of, um, of urgency about this issue but I think it is also a great example of why that is not a good way to make art and it never really works or lands and I'm very curious whether both of you had a similar reaction
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I I just feel like satire takes imagination, right? You have to create a sufficiently absurd scenario and then populate it with exaggeratedly flawed characters as a way of revealing some deeper truth about ourselves. And while this takes the tone of satire, it actually fails to do all of those things. All it does is take the Trump COVID response and then apply it to a made up situation as a way of illustrating what we're doing about about climate change. So it just has this sort of obvious and repetitive feeling, especially since for what is purportedly supposed to be a comedy, it appears to entirely lack jokes, you know, like like there are almost no jokes in the whole film, which I thought was 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 frankly bizarre. Uh, Julia, d- did you also feel this negatively about the movie?
0: Weirdly, your critical responses are causing in me the stirrings of a defense. <laughs> so yes,
1: bring this it. is what so I, I was we, hoping le- would
0: happen. Yes. Let me attempt to mount one. I I fear it may be a defense um, stirred by my own poor expectations. But, you know, so I'd heard that this movie was like a train wreck six ways to Sunday. Um, But this just seemed kind of fun in its vibrant badness, according (laughs) to reports. Um, And it was fun in its vibrant badness, I thought. Um, Or at least I thought that it was really interesting Uh, and maybe not entirely successful, but a very different climate movie than, you know, the day after tomorrow or some of the ones that we've seen in the past in that as makes sense, given Adam McKay's uh, previous efforts to explain the major fuck ups of modern society, right? He did the big short about the financial crisis. He did vice, which I think was much less successful uh, about the Bush administration. Um, but part of why this movie is so, uh, <laughs> your metaphor of a poorly run airport is very, very good Dana. but part of why it feels like that is that it is trying to actually look not just up, but all around at the various cultural forces that leave us where we are totally unable to face, um, this threat, um, uh, I thought that the skewering of Jack and Bree, uh, which are the morning show hosts played by Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry, uh, as a particular evisceration of the media environment that allows us to take our eye off the ball, was spot on. Kate Blanchett's teeth, hair, dresses, décolletage, like chipper, brittle banter, Are all so great. And Tyler Perry is a wonderful foil. I think they're supposed to be kind of like a Morning Joe, um, Mika Brzezinski kind of saucy banter vibe. Uh, And it works really well. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was like weirdly smart about the media environment. The political stuff feels like idiocracy, except less funny because it's just reality. Um, To your point about the COVID response, this movie was written before COVID, you know, like this This movie is uh, an imagination of what the political response to a world threatening calamity would be. And lo, here we are. You know,
1: like, right? I mean, I mean, it, you know, it, it is not the movie's fault that it is lapped by world events. I I that, and, but you know, at the same time, it's come out when it's come out. Do you know what I mean? And and uh, while I agree that the the media skewering is probably the strongest part, uh, uh, Tyler Perry is actually quite wonderful in the film. As is as is Kate Blanchett. You know, there was just a, a I I just felt like i was being you know hit in the head <laughs> over and over with with stuff i felt kind of like i already knew which was sort of my response to vice as well you know like like it it, it seemed to be saying you know, you seem to be almost, you know, hectoring the viewer about uh, uh, about this stuff. But at the same time, it's like I I already agree with it. So why are you hectoring me so much? Well, not-
0: but the problem with Vice was that it just believed that Dick Cheney was evil and loved being evil. Like it did not actually put forth a psychologically plausible uh, explanation of why the Bush administration acted the way it acted. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, this movie has a smart line about the idea that the people in power. You know that th- you should that they're not as smart as you think they are, and the conspiracy is not as complicated as you think it is. And that movie, um, that line, almost felt like it was talking back to Vice, like Vice was a kind of hyper-inflated um, conspiratorial theory of the case of the Bush administration, which is that it was, uh, you know, Cheney remains this like cipher of maniacal evil at the core, which is just not a plausible way to think about history. And and this movie seemed more emotionally sophisticated. Um, it's just what it's showing us is, uh, a chaos we're sick of and is like a little too close to home, I think. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I will also say I'm grading on a curve cause there was a part of me that just looked at this and was like, well, at least this is like about something and has some fun performances. And, you know, I, I'm probably the least, you know, Marvel cinematic universe bashing of the regulars on the show, but like it felt unpredictable. I, f- I was surprised by it, you know? mm
2: yeah, no, I kept being curious to see what happened next, but it was but it was a little bit of a watching a train wreck unfold kind of curiosity. I think also that if this had been made, written and directed by someone who was new on the scene, not necessarily their first film, but you know, some young filmmaker who was trying to address climate change in this urgent way, but the fact that this is this veteran comedy director who's made some of the great comedies of the 21st century and that he seems to be going down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole of, of madness with his last couple of movies, I mean both vice the Dick Cheney biopic right with Christian Bale I mean also a chaotic crazy planes landing kind of movie that had things like you know ending credits that happened 40 minutes before the ending that were the fake ending credits it was full of these kind of stunts and tricks and fake outs which this movie also uses we haven't talked about them all yet but you sort of never know when he's going to cut away to something else and you'll randomly see you know people all over the earth who are unrelated to the story and I just felt all of that was so crudely and sloppily handled for a person who really has the tools to do something more sophisticated. And I mean, a general example I would give is that there's this kind of image of the populace acting as one that happens over and over in this movie, and it becomes more and more embarrassing each time as a way of just understanding, you know, the way that that mass events are reacted to by huge populations of people. I mean, obviously, in the age of social media, that is a very heterogeneous and chaotic reaction. But over and over again in this movie, we have these moments where suddenly people start coming out of bars and park, you know, getting out of parked cars and staring up at the sky and suddenly all believing in the comet. There's a scene like that, right? Or, or I don't know, the, the protagonist will be sitting in a bar talking about the comet and suddenly the servers and the other patrons are all coming over to ask them questions. There's this sort of condescending idea of the people in this movie and their monolithic responses to things, whether they're being mocked as kind of sheeple or they're being seen as, you know, rising up as one that is just not the way masses of people (laughs) disagreeing about topics actually works
1: yeah it did feel to me a little bit like a first draft in a bunch of different ways you know like it just felt like there were these long gaps where jokes were meant to go and they maybe just put jokes tk or let people improvise or something the you know sort of lack of unity around the performances was very strange In, in particular mark rylance who's normally a brilliant actor delivers what i think is probably a career worst work in this film our new Bash fourteen point three phone is fully integrated into your every feeling and desire, without you
0: needing to say one single word. If I feel, how what the Mark Ryland's performance is incredible. You think that's a career worst performance? I was yeah. like, yes. Oh, what? That's yes. like, oh my god, I love. It's just that all. It,
1: it's all mannered. It's it's just all a bunch of manners with no juice no lifeblood or 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 something i just like i just oh i found it so off-putting
0: oh my god i loved that he is like this um oracle who believes he has power because he is smart but actually has power because he has money and did one smart thing a long time ago um and he just i don't know the like batty oracular evasiveness I would I would watch like a whole sequel about about that character set in the tech world and, and when he came on stage I was like, Who is that? Like I briefly thought it was Billy Crudup because of the face grooves and then was like, Oh my god, Mark Ryland's perfect, beautiful. Wow. All right, Dana, split the vote.
2: <laughs> I mean First of all, I liked Mark Rylance's performance. I wouldn't say that I wildly loved it, but I think he had one of the more interesting characters. I felt like his character was an expansion of the character he played in Ready Player One, a a very bad movie that we also talked about on this show. But I would say something about all the performances, not just Mark Rylance's, that I think you as a director, Isaac, might identify with, which is that they just seem to be very poorly managed. And this goes back to the airport metaphor. Like, I wouldn't really lay it at Mark Rylance's feet or Meryl Streep's feet, who also is sort of unremarkable (laughs) as as the president. Like, you would certainly never know that She was one of the great esteemed actresses of of her generation from this kind of offhanded casual performance that she gives as this sort of Trump-like president or very Trump-like president. Um, But there are lots of good performers in this movie who, like Leo DiCaprio, who... Don't really seem to be given the right direction. There's no guidance. It feels like a rehearsal. I don't know how to describe it, but this goes back to me just sort of saying, it this really feels like it was very sloppily put together for being such a big budget movie with, with so many stars in it. It's like a filmed rehearsal.
1: Well, uh, Dana, we'll have to let you have the last word there. We have two votes against and, and, and one vote for. Uh, perhaps you want to check out the film yourself. That's Don't Look Up. You can stream it on Netflix today. And then uh, if you disagree with us, you can be like the filmmakers and yell at us on social media. OK, moving on.
2: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: All right, now we've come to the part of the show where we do the business. Dana, what have you got for us?
2: Isaac, our only item of business this week is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. It comes from a listener question, as a few of them have recently, from a listener named Alan, who asks us, quote, "'In this era of remakes, reboots, and reimaginings of old TV shows and movies, is there one old TV show or film you would want to see brought back? And if so, how would you update it?' Also, what do you think makes for a successful remake, reboot, or reimagining? This is a great and very timely question since we've been bewailing a lot the um, the absolute domination of reboots and uh, unoriginal IP at the box office. So we're going to reboot some of our own IP in today's Slate Plus segment. You can hear that, of course, if you're a member of Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. If not, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up costs only a dollar for your first month. For that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus content, like the Slate Plus segment I just described and members-only content on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gap Fest. Also, of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. And I should also mention that, of course, you are supporting us, our journalism, our work, the podcasting and writing of our brilliant colleagues at Slate. So please, if you're not a member already, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, what's next, Isaac?
1: Bahamian-American actor, director, and diplomat Sidney Poitier died last week at the age of 94. Over the course of a trailblazing multi-decade career, Poitier absolutely transformed American filmmaking, and in particular, representations of Black people on screen. And he was the first Black actor to win the Best Actor Oscar in 1964. We are joined today by film historian and journalist Mark Harris to discuss Poitier's career and legacy. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the Culture Gab Fest.
3: Thanks for having me, Isaac. Mark,
1: your classic book, Pictures at a Revolution, discusses Poitier and his career in depth. And one thing that you address both in that book and in the wonderful obituary you wrote of Poitier for Entertainment Weekly is the very difficult minefield that he had to navigate to have the career that, that he had in the mid-20th century. Can you talk a bit about that? Because his work goes through several different phases in response to a lot of different and, in many ways, irreconcilable cultural pressures, right?
3: Right. I mean, his work goes through phases. You know, you you can say it's in response to those changes, but sometimes the changes were even faster than uh, could be reflected in the work that he mm. was doing. Mm. I mean, when I was when I was working on pictures of the revolution, one of the challenges was that uh, the period it covers, which is 1963 to 1968, was a period of such rapid change, particularly in the area that we're talking about. Um, representation of black Americans on screen and what was, uh, expected of them by, uh, white audiences by older audiences by younger audiences by black audiences the degree to which the black audience was even recognized as a major demographic by Hollywood which it really was not until around 1967 Um, there was so much uh, that Sidney Poitier was asked to navigate implicitly uh, just in his choice of roles and he was acutely aware of that like before he ever Stepped on screen, he knew that he would be judged for taking a particular part, um, and it was, you know, challenging and and terribly constraining and and frustrating for him. I think, and uh, just the fact that on the occasion of his passing, we're able to talk about even a few of his performances rather than just his sort of pathbreaking barrier breaking cultural legacy is a testament to um what he was able to accomplish but but it, it, he really did face a, a great number of hurdles
1: and you know, you mention as well that that he does have a number of, of truly brilliant performances. That you know, so you can go out and stream right now. So you know, if you sort of only know Poitier maybe from Sneakers, uh, it's late in life, uh, a film that I think Julie and I both think is a masterpiece. Or you know, you sort of know him from his cultural reputation, but haven't actually delved into the work. Where would you start?
3: I feel like I would start with. Uh, in the Heat of the Night, honestly. Um, you know, I don't think you have to go chronologically with Sidney Poitier, and I think I think, In the Heat of the Night is, to me, an endlessly fascinating movie because he is playing this character, um, Virgil Tibbs, uh, a detective from uh, the North who uh, finds himself sort of stranded in a small southern town um, right after a murder has happened. And... Um, it's kind of the perfect Sidney Poitier metatextual performance because he is the, the lone black man surrounded by uh, variously problematic white people who has to um, hold on to his integrity and his identity and the fact that he's smarter than all of them uh, and control every feeling that he is having about what is happening around him uh, in order to um, to do good to 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 uh, to help solve this murder but also to survive and eventually get out of there and and so you see in this performance um, what audiences in 1967 when the movie came out had already seen by then for 10 years or more in his performances which is cool-headedness quiet control um, you know, forbearance, patience with the fact that, uh, a lot of the people around him are bigoted or stupid or ignorant. Um, but in the, in, in the heat of the night for the first time, you also get to see it, uh, break down. You get to see him, uh, lash out a little bit and get angry. And, uh, it's really hard to convey to audiences now how, uh, electrifying, that was for people to see in 1967. I mean, people who were, uh, you know, teenagers and saw that movie in theaters, uh, still remember uh, what uh, this, the reaction in the audience to this pivotal scene where um, he's slapped in the face uh, by a white racist and he responds in kind. Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse? Say last night about midnight. The gasps, the cheering, the laughter, the shock in that audience. That's how unusual and unprecedented it was.
2: Yeah, there's a great story in your in your book, in Pictures at a Revolution, Mark, of Rod Steiger, Sidney Poitier's co-star in the movie, and Poitier going to movies together and having this game where they would wait. They would try to figure out the, the composition, the racial composition of the audience by whether people were cheering or gasping when the, when the slapping scene, the mutual slapping scene between a white and black man occurs.
3: Right. I mean, you can trace a whole... Uh lineage down from that movie um, through uh, into something like, um, you know, Richard Pryor comedies of the 1970s and then um, Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte walking into a bar in 48 hours. Like, those movies don't happen without In the Heat of the Night, and those movie stars don't happen without um, Sidney Poitier being the first one. But, of course... Because he was the first one, and and as he said so often, the only one, um, that put terrible and really tragic constraints, he felt, on what he could allow himself to do on screen.
2: Right, and as one example of that, Mark, the, the role that he won his first Oscar for, and I believe the first acting Oscar ever given to a black actor... Um, was, was Lilies of the Field, which, as you say in your tribute to Poitiers, is, is really kind of a, a melodramatic um, and extremely hagiographic movie that makes him into that kind of saintly figure that he just starts to move away from within the heat of the night. I wondered if you could talk about that tendency, especially pre-in the heat of the night, for him to take on only saintly roles and the fact that he himself said he didn't want to play villains. There's something that he said in a 1967 interview that you, you quote in your tribute to him that I'm just going to read about about that, about his refusal for many years to play bad guys in movies. He says, it's a choice, a clear choice. If the fabric of the society were different, I would scream to high heaven to play villains and to deal with different images of Negro life that would be more dimensional. But I'll be damned if I do that at this stage of the game. So that's from a 1967 interview when he is starting to move beyond that kind of characterization a bit. But I wonder if what you would have to say about that that stage of his career when he could essentially only play perfect men.
3: The opposite of villain for a black actor in 1965 wasn't hero. It was it was either saint or. Um, Teaching tool for a set of white characters and for white audiences, you know, in in movies like uh, *Lilies of the Field*, for which he won his Oscar, where he's he's this almost Jesus-like figure who comes along and helps, you know, a group of nuns in the desert, or uh, a movie like um A Patch of Blue in 1965 where where uh he's sort of the object in a racial parable about how um a blind white woman can fall in love with him because she's blind and wouldn't it be amazing if you know to to use the overused phrase if nobody saw color um you know the 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 characters that he was given the problem wasn't that they were all Good guys. It was that um, until f- very much later in his career, they weren't fully realized, fully um, dimensional protagonists. Uh, and and so I think he was he was confronting his own strong beliefs about who he could and couldn't play, but he was also confronting the reality of uh, what was offered to him, and and frankly, trying to avoid some minefields that he was very uh, smart to avoid. I mean, I, I write about um, his performances in two uh, big 1967 movies, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but he was almost um, uh, in a third movie uh, from that year, Dr. Doolittle, where, where he was sought to play a really horribly sort of um, racist conception of a kind of primitive king in Africa. And, and so we ha- when we look at his body of work, we, we have to also use as a yardstick uh, the, what, what is invisible, which is the roles he turned down, the roles he was never offered, the terrible roles that he was smart enough to turn down, the great parts that were never written because nobody was writing for um, a, a black leading man.
0: Can you just tell our listeners um, a, a little bit more about Poitier's path and sort of how he came to be this this groundbreaker and this pioneer? Because, you know, we, we all watched in the heat of the night um, just to have sort of a common text to be thinking about as we talk about his career and his legacy. And it, it, it listening to you talk about his career, it's so striking the sense of kind of control and deliberate decision-making that's constantly aware of the threat and potential threat and perceived uh, threats around him feel like a metaphor for how he had to navigate his career along the way. But can you talk a little bit about how it was that he broke in and came to be um, the the actor he became?
3: Sure. Um, well, you know, by the time In the Heat of the Night came out in 1967, uh, Poitier had worked very steadily in Hollywood for um, more than 15 years. He he wasn't uh, any kind of an overnight star. He was very, very familiar to audiences. He had been around since um, uh, this film, No Way Out, I think was his first movie in 1950, in the Blackboard Jungle. I mean, he actually played a medical intern and then years later played a high school student. That was how uh, how little uh, Hollywood knew what to do with him. But, but he had had... Um, you know a fairly steady, interesting upward trajectory. Um, you know he had gotten uh, his first Oscar nomination in 1958 for the Defiant Ones opposite Tony Curtis, which was another kind of very uh, well intentioned white liberal parable. It's about um, two uh, runaway convicts who are chained to each other, and it's 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 sort of if if only. If only black and white people could realize that they had to work together to survive. That kind of movie. Um, and and uh, he had been in Porgy and Bess. He had been, uh, as we talked about, in Lilies of the Field, which was his second Oscar nomination and his win in 1963. So th- there was there was this kind of steady upward. Um, you know, he was the one. Black Star the, the 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 Black Star that white audiences um found really acceptable and the only Black Star that um black audiences had it's not like there was anyone else for them to turn to the number of um black men who appeared in leading roles uh, in Hollywood movies was really, really tiny. So what's amazing is that during those 15 or 16 or 17 years, uh, his presence did not precipitate the arrival of more black stars or of a greater variety of parts for black people. It sort of made it unnecessary in 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 the minds of white hollywood it kind of took care of the whole obligation no other talent had to be sought or developed because they had checked that box
1: you have actually spoken to Sidney poitier something the rest of us uh, have not done as far as i know so can you tell me a bit about the phone conversation that that you had with him (laughs)
3: <laughs> I spoke to him very briefly for about 10 minutes. I, I had really chased him for a very long time for an interview for Pictures at a Revolution, and I didn't get it. I, I tried my best in that book to create as full a portrait uh, as I could without that interview, and I was aided immeasurably by the fact that there, there was a huge legacy of him doing interviews at every stage of his career, and also he had written two autobiographies. Um, but, of course, I really wanted to talk to him, and I played every card I had. I called in every favor I had. I I can't even, uh, I don't even feel comfortable saying the names of the people I uh, used to intercede on my behalf.
2: (laughs) The rungs on your ladder. But,
3: But like, yeah, I mean, like this is the one time in my career that I have like, used my husband, used the people he knew ruthlessly, used anyone I could, um, agents, other movie stars, other directors, to say, please, you know, will you talk to him? And and one of them, uh, was like a shockingly famous and powerful person, called me back and and uh, said, well, I don't think I had any luck because I called Sidney and said, um, I will vouch for Mark Harris. And Sydney paused and said, yes, but who will vouch for you? <laughs> oh, my God. And um, so then I, I he did agree to get on the phone and talk to me. And um, of course, he could not have been lovelier and more gracious and more gentlemanly. And I explained to him the kind of book I was doing and what I was interested in. And, and you know, he just very gently said that um, he he would not try to get in my way, but that that just wasn't uh, a, a time in his life or a period in his life that he felt um, comfortable revisiting and that he felt he had said all that he had to say about it. But, you know, it's the very uh, rare moment when getting turned down flat just gives you this wonderfully warm feeling you know I think I walked around in a daze for two days thinking oh I I I talked to Sidney Poitier and then maybe on the third day I was like oh right but I lost (laughs) (laughs) but it was it was a pleasure to it it was a pleasure to go down to defeat at his hands you know he, he and I really understood it because um you know he had had terribly rough and condescending and nasty treatment um, from any number of journalists uh, during the period that I was writing about. And, and if anyone was entitled to just to not trust me, frankly, he was.
1: Well, Mark Harris, thank you so much for joining us here on the GabFest to talk about the life and legacy and work of the late, truly great Sidney
3: Poitier. Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right. Well, uh, if you've never seen it, In the Heat of the Night is streamable from any number of places. Uh, uh, It's a great movie. And if you've never read it, Pictures at a Revolution is truly one of the best books about Hollywood out there. Pick up a copy and read it today. All right. Moving on. I asked my girlfriend to marry me on Ash Wednesday. It was an accident, not the asking, the timing. The asking had been on my mind for the better part of two years. So begins How I Proposed to My Girlfriend, a beautiful essay by Katherine Schultz in The New Yorker that is itself excerpted from her wonderful new memoir, Lost and Found, which is out this week from Random House. Katherine, thank you so much for joining us on the Slate Culture Gab Fest.
4: I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So can you tell us a bit about the book? It's a memoir. What is the story it's telling? And and at what point in living through that story did you realize you wanted to write it as a book?
4: It's actually telling multiple stories. One of them is uh, quite a sad one. It's the story of uh, losing my father and and grieving him after his death in 2016. Uh, And the other one is a very joyful one. It's a love story about uh, my partner who I met not long before my father died and married not long after he died so those personal anecdotes anchor the book uh, and and certainly merit it the the um title of memoir but quite a lot of the book is about these larger categories of human experience about uh losing things um not just loved ones but but the whole range of things we can lose you know Keys, cell phones, elections, <laughs> uh, faith, sense of ourselves, uh, and and then conversely about all the many wonderful kinds of things we find, including but not limited to love.
1: So, what was you know your process like for 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 writing it? You're obviously your training is as a journalist. That's your your background. You've won a Pulitzer Prize in it. Um, uh, was it? Did you do a lot of research for it over the course of of imagining its kind of overall structure and writing it?
4: I did a lot of research. Um, you know. Partly, I, I suppose one could unkindly call some of it procrastination. You know, it's a lot easier to, to read a bunch of wonderful books than to sit down and write your own. But I was mm-hmm. actually quite new to memoir and in some ways new even to to personal writing at all. I mean, I'd done a little bit of it, but not much. Uh, and so I did feel uh, some sense that I should sit down and, and acquaint myself or reacquaint myself with the genre. Uh, so I did a lot of reading Um there was comparatively little uh, research in the sense of kind of reporting or, or the other things I'm accustomed to doing as a journalist that went into this book, but not, not at all. I had a lot of fun learning about uh, a handful of stray topics that make their way into the book, like, you know, um, meteorites and uh, the, the history of, of how we uh, set about searching for
2: human beings when they go missing and things like that. <laughs> Catherine, this maybe comes out of what you were just saying about this being the most personal thing that you've written certainly the most personal book you've written i was just thinking about how both different and the same this book is from being wrong your first book written quite a while ago now 10 years ago or something like that which mm-hmm. is a highly reported book that more resembles i think your journalism for the new yorker in that you know you're you're exploring a lot of um, factu- different factual fields and bringing them together but like this book it's animated by a very personal and passionate idea And I I guess this is a question about what kind of work you had to do as a writer to find this different voice that you find in this book, which is extremely personal and intimate and in which you really, you describe two of the most personal experiences and difficult to describe experiences a person can live through, which is losing a parent and falling in love. How did you free yourself to do this kind of writing?
4: The truth is it, interestingly did not feel that different to me from writing my reported pieces. I guess I always feel incredibly passionate and personal about what I'm writing, even if there's no first person in it. Um, so the the work of putting the book together, you know, was different because, as you say, there there wasn't a lot of reporting. But when it came to sit down and write, um, I don't know. I think there's just there's a voice in your head, or maybe there's a lot of voices in your head. And in some cases, you know, love stories, grief stories – we we tell ourselves those. I don't want to sound wax all Joan Didion here, but but we tell ourselves those whether or not we're writing them down. Right, we we're always rehearsing our love story in some senses because people say things like, "Well, how did you guys meet?" You know, or you, you derive. I think I think whenever you're in love, you derive real delight in in talking about how it came to be. And of course, when someone dies, we we mourn them in part by eulogizing them uh, formally and in our day to day lives. So the the conversation about these intimate experiences was already happening kind of in my head and around me. And it did not feel like that drastic of a of a shift to just sit down and put it on paper.
0: I'm curious to hear sort of how much writing was a way of processing these big emotional experiences for you, or how much writing was a way to try to capture what you had already processed outside of writing. Um, you know, I think our listeners know I lost my father this year and also had a baby within the span of five weeks. And so, although it's a different joy bomb than finding love, um, can certainly relate to the feeling of great sadness and great wonderment at the same time. Um, and Steve and I actually were talking a couple weeks ago about writing that sort of a, a push toward writing as a way of thinking about loss. Um, and experiencing loss, but I'm I'm curious, sort of, how much of it was a during thing, and how much of it was a okay, I've I've figured something out thing.
4: Well, I would have said it was all kind of an after the fact thing, but uh, in retrospect, I think it was kind of a um, conveniently in the middle at a pause thing, uh, which is to say, I I didn't feel while writing this that I was writing it as an act of catharsis. I felt that I knew how I felt about my father's death and had moved through a lot of the uh, kind of most intense early grief by the time I sat down to do it. And it felt um, it felt much more like, okay, I've had the emotional process and and now I have to go through the intellectual process of figuring out how I can best communicate this to readers and and do so um, in ways that do help explore these other categories that are, or these larger categories that are of interest to me. Uh, And the same thing with my love story. I mean, the love story is of course ongoing, but I, um, it felt like a, it felt mostly like a writing challenge, not like a, an emotional challenge. Um, In fact, the love story was emotionally quite delightful to write, but you know, it's funny. I finished this book before, um, I I too have a a new baby and um, I finished this book before she was born. And um, Julia, I'm sure you've experienced this very acutely, but My baby is a source of just constant, constant joy to me, but I was really, uh, I I really got the breath knocked out of me by how intensely I experienced sorrow about the fact that my father will never get to meet her and she will never know her grandfather. So I I don't mean to suggest that all the emotional work was done because of course it just comes back and comes back, right? Life, life confronts you once again with loss and all these new and surprising ways. But, um, but no, in terms of getting the book on the page, it felt quite a lot like most other writing, which is just, you know, writing is often hard and (laughs) figuring out what goes where is hard and (laughs) figuring out what, you know, doesn't need to be in there at all after you've written 10,000 words
2: about it. (laughs) It it mostly felt like very familiar (laughs) kinds of writing challenges. As long as we're talking about what goes where, I'm very curious about how you decided to structure this book because it's not chronological, which is interesting. These two experiences that you're writing about actually overlapped meeting your girlfriend, now wife, and losing your father so that they did get to meet each other. I believe there were 18 months that he was alive that you were with her. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. But yet you start the story with him and even with his parents' story and really eulogize your father beautifully. And by the way, the character portrait of him that emerges is so precise and so intense that it makes me feel like I have met him and I wish that I had. Um, But you really don't introduce uh, the the love story until after you've told your father's story and then they, you know, sort of fold back on each other. And I wonder what was the thinking in in structuring it temporally in that way? Well, first of all, I'm just so happy to hear that
4: you feel like you met my father. There's almost nothing I, I would rather hear from a reader about their reaction to this book. Um, yeah, structure. As I said, strangely, I, I understood the structure of this book from the very beginning. Um, it's in, for, for people who haven't picked it up yet, it's it's written in three parts. Uh, it's called Lost and Found, and the three parts are Lost, Found, and And. Uh, and I knew, I knew right away I had to tell the grief story first, the lost section, um, partly because I actually do, without sounding hopelessly corny, I I believe in redemption and I believe in joy. And uh, the book obviously moves kind of past joy into this point about the connections, the inevitable connections between our joy and our sorrow and our love and our grief. But I I knew I wanted the story of falling in love to come after the story of my father's death, partly to see readers um, or to let readers see the experience of, of moving beyond great sorrow and remembering that joy is always kind of lurking out there somewhere, hopefully. Uh, so that was obvious to me. It did have a kind of wonderful side effect, which is, you're right, right? The story is not told strictly chronologically. And in order to tell the story of falling in love with my partner, I actually had to take us back in time to before my father had died, uh, which turned out to be kind of a great experience in the sense that I, I kind of briefly got to bring him back to life in this book you know we literally watch him die and then and then he shows up again so that he does meet my partner you know and we got kind of one cycle of life together you know 18 months is pretty much you know one birthday one anniversary you know one Hanukkah one New Year's and uh and so it was it was sweet to me to have him reappear in the pages and and have the two of them kind of meet on the page in that way.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, Catherine, one of the things that it strikes me is this story is so personal, but it is not, of course, only your story, right? It's the story of so many of your loved ones, including your wife, your your family. You know, um, how did you kind of navigate that that aspect of it of, you know, you're taking these very private things that involve these other people and sort of moving them into the public realm?
4: Well, you know, it's very funny. Um, you're, you're right about the nature of the book, obviously. Uh, I did the first book event last night and uh, someone asked me, you know, is this actually a memoir? Like, the truth is, you're not in it nearly as much as these other people that you're writing about, uh, which is astute <laughs> and correct. You know, um, I, uh, I I, ostensibly am writing about myself, but mostly I'm writing about my partner and my father and both of their families, Um And, you know, it was interesting heading into it. I never meant to write a memoir. Uh, My partner certainly did not regard me as a memoirist when we met. And uh, (laughs) she is, in fact, a much more private person than I am. Uh, And it is greatly to her credit that she championed this book from, from the moment it was an idea to, you know, today when it's emerging into the world with her you know, much of her life and her family's life in it for all the world to see. Right. Um, I feel really lucky. You know, I when I went to, you know, when you sell a book, you kind of go and shop it around to all these publishers, try to find someone to buy it. And one of those publishers um, asked me in this kind of roundabout way, but but ultimately what they were asking was like, well, if we publish this book, how likely is it that we're going to get sued by someone in it? <laughs> and I was very relieved to be able to say, no, no, there's, there's no one litigious involved in this story. Uh, so I didn't have to worry very much about the kinds of, um, of troubling family dynamics that I think a lot of memoirs that are grappling with, you know, trauma or or family dysfunction have to, uh, I'm happy to say, I think everyone in the book is is pleased to be in it and pleased with it.
2: Catherine, can I just tell you a small way that your book has changed me in the couple of months since I've read it? I think you'll appreciate this because it's a tribute to your father. (laughs) And I think you remember this story. When I was reading your book in an advanced reader copy back at the end of the summer, I lost the book (laughs) and I was right in the middle of it and so excited to be reading it. I was probably on page 50 and, uh, and then I went on a trip and left it on a bus or something like that and I had to write to the publisher again and get a second book and you and I were having a joking exchange about that and I was saying how appropriate to lose Lost and Found the entire beginning of which is about as you say losing objects losing people what it means to to not be able to find something and a way that your book has changed me is that you described really wonderfully how your father although he was an inveterate loser of objects didn't really care that much and had this kind of wonderful um, nonchalance about losing things and just assumed well it'll show up if I need it. And if not, you know, I guess I didn't need it in the first place. And so since reading your book, I have tried to imitate your dad and blame myself less for my constant distraction and loss of all of my objects. And basically, if something's replaceable, you replace it. If not, it's gone. Well, he would be very
4: pleased that his uh, kind of nonchalant attitude was contagious like that. And it does seem to me like, you know, part of part of what the book is trying to help us figure out is is how to let go of these more trivial losses that there's there's nothing to be done about except call the publisher and ask for a new copy. Um, (laughs) But Dana, I should also say he loved your work. So he'd be specifically thrilled that that you loved the book and had
2: a reaction to him as a character. (laughs) That's so, so touching to hear. Wow. Thank you.
1: Well, we are so grateful to you for coming on the show and uh, so pleased that you have been our guest this week. Uh, Listeners, you should not be nonchalant about Lost and Found uh, from uh, out this week from Penguin Random House. You should definitely pick up a copy and let us know what you think. Uh, Catherine Schultz, thank you so much once again for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me. It's a total pleasure.
1: All right, moving on. All right, now we've come to the part of the program where we share our endorsements. Dana. What have you got?
2: Isaac, listeners who follow me on Twitter may have already heard me raving about my endorsement this week, which is David Ehrlich's video countdown of the best films of 2021. Is this a tradition that either of you are familiar with? David Ehrlich's montages of end of year montages of the movies of the year? They're so Uh, wonderful. This is the thing he's been doing. It's on Vimeo this year. I don't know where he, he usually puts them, but for many years now, at least, I don't know, five years that I can remember going back. David Ehrlich, who is the film critic at IndieWire, one of the critics at IndieWire, makes a video montage of what he considers the 25 best movies of the year. And it is always, always a total delight and a joy. It usually drops sometime near the beginning of the year. It just dropped this week. And it's just always a magnificent job of editing, really funny, witty, beautiful music choices, often very moving passages that... Um, It's hard to describe, but he puts the movies of the year together in a way that they sort of tell stories. So he'll sort of put together, you know, scenes of people running or, you know, moments of a a character weeping or of giving birth or the sort of thematic um, threads that connect the films. He just always manages to make it into this really soaring document that makes you want to see every single movie in the countdown. And even though I'm a film critic and have usually seen the majority of them, I always come away from these montages with a scribbled down list of a few titles that I haven't caught and really want to see. Um, it's just really, really fun. And it's a great tradition of the year. It always sort of feels to me like it's sort of like um, the the King's Day <laughs> marks the end of, of the Christmas season, right? The the Right. The, Dave Kings or whatever it's called. This sort of marks the end of a, the the movie year to me when David Ehrlich's montage drops. So we will put a link to that on our show page. And you should also, if you're interested in movies, follow David Ehrlich on Twitter because he's, he's always a fun follow.
1: That's great, that's great. Uh, so Julia, what have you got for us this week?
0: Today, my endorsement is Lego, a specific Lego set number 10280. This is the Lego Flower Bouquet. Um, it's part of the Lego ideas collection, which is, um, I think is basically like Legos for grownups is maybe the best way to summarize it. They have like an elaborate, like mechanical typewriter set. They have all kinds of interesting ones. Um, but, uh, with this Lego flower bouquet, you can build an actually like slightly beautiful, a bunch of flowers and if you are someone who has assisted uh, your children or yourself with lots of lego builds over the years you will be impressed by the very creative uses of lego parts to make quite realistic flowers there's some roses there's some kind of foxglovey looking things there's some asters there's a california poppy um but the construction makes very creative use of lego pieces there are um crowns that are used to make sort of a bit of thorny bramble there are surfboards that are used to make sort of the tip of some fronds um and uh most notably the car hoods in a kind of dusty rose become the expanding petals of a sort of peony rose type flower anyway it's a really nifty bit of lego design built it with my children. It was super fun. Now it's on my desk and uh, I don't have to add water to it. Actually, I did have to put water in the base to keep it from tipping over because all those car hoods were slightly top heavy in the vase. I found that made it look lovely, but um, you don't have to change the water in it very often. Uh, So that is Lego Flower Bouquet 10280, a 756 piece kit from Lego.
1: That's amazing. Julia, I'm glad you told us where it is because I always feel like when I'm done assembling a Lego thing with Iris, the next question is like, well, now what do I do with it? Which uh, is often she plays with it and then destroys it and then I have to rebuild it.
0: Yeah, we have like a whole cupboard of like Ninjago temples and discarded dragons and half-assembled Lego Trevi fountains that um, we are going to move in a few weeks and I'm I'm wondering... (laughs) <laughs> Whether they'll make it. Wither, wither the many Legos. So we'll see.
1: <laughs> well, I thought I would hit us with a uh, Sydney Poitier related endorsement this week, which is for Percival Everett's novel, I Am Not Sydney Poitier. Um, it's a sort of indescribable. Uh, Road trip comedy about sort of what it's like to live under the legacy of of Sidney Poitier and his film work, but the way it does this is it's about a young man who looks exactly like Sidney Poitier and whose name is not Sidney Poitier, uh, and is the adopted son of Ted Turner, and he goes on this kind of uh, you know buildings Roman throughout the United States to find himself, but he keeps finding himself trapped in the plots of various Sidney Poitier movies, although you don't actually need to know the plots of those movies to to enjoy the book. I did not the first time I read it. It's very funny. It's very strange. If you like the work of Charles Portis, for example, you'll really dig it. Um, Percival Everett's a, a really wonderful, prolific, and fascinating writer. Uh, and I Am Not Sidney Poitier is one of his funniest books. So that's what I'm going to uh, uh, recommend this week.
2: That sounds fantastic. Oh, I'm, I'm scribbling it down right now.
0: That's a book that it sounds like you dreamed, so I'm I'm uh, delighted yeah. that it's real.
1: It does sort of sound like you were eating some spicy nachos while watching a Poitier marathon on TCM and then passed out, and then that was the dream, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. If you have feedback for us or ideas for topics to discuss on the show, please send us an email at at slate.com. Our intro music is by the brilliant composer Nicholas Bertel, who also did the uh, really great score for Don't Look Up. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Isaac Butler. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.